0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week, we find out about odd things hanging out in our solar system and beyond. Now, our solar system is full of all kinds of strange and wonderful asteroids that have come from weird locations, and fortunately enough we've been able to visit some and look at samples from its surface. Plus, we find out about why other solar systems with exoplanets have really odd Neptunes and why our Neptune is so special. Before we dive into this week's Tales of Asteroids and what we can learn about our solar system, I'm just going to take a moment to say this marks episode 520 of this little podcast. Whether this is the first time that you've listened in or you've been listening for the last 10 years of weekly episodes, welcome and thank you for listening to this show. When it was first started, we were all much younger and much more younger scientists, definitely. Some of us have gone on to work in different fields across the world, all coming out of this core based in the Young sites of Australia, Melbourne, Chapter. And since then, many of us have gone on to do other things, engineering, scientific, working with robots, working in biology, in labs, in private research, and in different fields entirely. And many people have been involved in this project from the beginning, including three major early contributors and pioneers on the program, such as Ren, Jos, and Lucy, who have been involved in this At very early stages and carrying it through but most importantly the main reason why this exists is so you can learn something fun and interesting about science without having to bore through papers and try to get a bit more insight whether or not you're a practicing scientist or someone who's just sci curious get a bit of crunch and you find out something hopefully new and exciting sometimes it might be something you've never even heard of or thought about before And that's why this podcast exists, while we hang out at the Lagrange Point, to learn occasionally interesting and insightful facts on areas of science you may not even have thought about before. Now, if this is the first time listening, I hope you enjoy the show. Now, for the long-time listeners, thank you for coming along on the ride. But now we're going to go talk about something we've talked about several times here on this podcast before. Some amazing missions from... JAXA, the Japanese space agency, that they were plowing and digging and diving into asteroids near earth and more importantly than that they sent something back. Now we're actually starting to get our first papers published from this daring mission and the interesting results are certainly worth the wait. now let's take a step back and talk about the mission Hayabusa now the original Hayabusa mission was one of the first sample and returned asteroid missions all the way back in 2010. And based on the success of that particular mission, they, JAXA, developed a new mission called Haibusa 2, launched way back in December 2014, contemporaneously with the early days of this podcast. But way back then, they were sending it out to hunt for and rendezvous with a near-Earth asteroid. In particular, they chose 162173 Ryugu. And it actually got there in June 2018, orbited for a long time, for a year and a half, before it actually took samples then it left the asteroid 2019 and brought all those samples all the way back to Earth, delivering them on December 5th, 2020. Now, Hayabusa 2 dropped off samples, but it's gone back out there to go hunt more asteroids. And it will continue to do so all the way up to 2031. The sample in return wasn't the only thing that Hayabusa 2 had with it. It had a bunch of rovers, four of them in fact, all part of the different Minerva missions and mascot, the different research project and teams from across the world, Like, for example, the German Aerospace Center and others all contributed different rovers that were carried as payloads aboard this mission. But the most exciting thing that Hayabusa did was shoot a projectile at the surface of Ryugu and then catch or suck up what was ejected. It's a crazy way to get material into a space probe, but it worked. They actually got more material than they expected, jammed it inside the return capsule. And then when they swung past Earth, they launched that off and it was collected, actually landed in Australia. Now, all of this goes to show that it was a pretty exciting mission. I know we've talked about it a lot here on the podcast because well, it's cool. They went and hung out in an asteroid for a bit and then came back and dropped off some data. But what did these samples actually tell the world about how asteroids work? Now, a particular paper we're going to look at here was published in the journal Nature Astronomy. Now, lead authors on this paper were Kent McCain and Nozomi Matsuda. but uh, The list of collaborators on this is a long one because, well, there's a lot of researchers involved from NASA, from JAXA, from universities like UCLA and others all working together as part of an international collaborative team. Now, this particular paper was involved studying what kind of early signs they can learn about the early solar system by studying the rocks, or composition of rocks rather, found on the surface of Ryugu, an asteroid. Now Ryugu is what we call a carbonaceous asteroid, or a type, which means it's rocky and carbon-rich. This is a pretty important thing because it helps us understand what are the basic fundamental building blocks or Lego that make up our solar system, and the way in which our solar system was created after the accretion of all of these little lumps of rock. Now, what's interesting about Ryugu, and in particular the sample and return stage of it, is that we got samples of what makes up this rock, and we got it back to Earth. It's very different to have a pristine sample, rather than one that falls from a meteorite, because we have lots of samples of stellar objects, things that have fallen to Earth, that tell us about asteroids and meteorites. But it doesn't actually give us information that's not been somewhere potentially compromised or changed by interacting with earth's atmosphere or the chemicals there even if it's flaming through and you get it while it's still hot there's a chance that it's been somehow changed by the process of getting to earth so actual untouched pure material from an asteroid surface brought back to earth protected it, and it's gone safely inside of a lander well that's a very different proposition you can do really sensitive chemical analysis because you can look for key chemical fingerprints and samples That you wouldn't otherwise be able to see now this is important because it helps researchers understand what chemical compounds precisely make up an asteroid that's cool for understanding an asteroid but it also is important to understand important facts about the formation of our solar system by trying to date the isotopes and things that you find inside of these asteroids themselves and when they did this isotopic analysis they found that these main carbonate minerals which they took from the asteroid and then crystallized in water, they were originally created to the asteroid at ice, as the asteroid was barely forming. So in the early stages of the solar system, these would have been chunks of ice. And they would have ice would have grouped together, forming this asteroid. And then they were warmed into a liquid. These carbonates therefore would have formed really early on in terms of the age of our solar system, like 1.8 million years of the solar system existence, which in a stellar sense is an absurdly short period of time. And because they are captured and ensconced inside this asteroid, they actually give us a snapshot back into exactly what and where it was happening when this asteroid was formed. They would preserve a, a record of that. Temperature and composition of the asteroid's aqueous fluid, its little liquidy surface, that existed at the time of its formation. And this is really cool because it changes some of our understanding of how asteroids have formed. The samples from Ryugu actually give us an indication that it formed very rapidly in the outer solar system, beyond the, a line where things started to be able to condense, like water and carbon dioxide, into ice. So probably a small bodies that were condensing in some point around this external area of the solar system, and either Ryogu as its total being was, or it was a fraction of a much larger object would have started off small and have created as relatively small object, probably less than maybe twenty kilometres in diameter. But it would have formed still very rapidly. Now, while Ryugu is only around one kilometer in size, this isn't that surprising because, well, asteroids lose mass over time. What's a bit more surprising given where we've found it and the state that it's in is, we would have assumed that it would have been a much larger asteroid. Generally, to, body, to survive that long period of time, we see it needs to be around 50 kilometers in size. That kind of diameter is enough to survive all kinds of collisions, bufferings, bumps, that an asteroid, especially in the early solar system, would see and encounter. But if that were the case, there would have been a huge amount of radioactive K of aluminium-26, a radioactive nucleotide, that would have been found in the core samples. Because when an asteroid of that size would have been then drifting closer and closer in, it would have been heated to a high temperature, which would have melted the surface to an extent, changed its chemical composition, separated out the metals and the silicates. That is what would happen if it was from a larger asteroid, but that's not what we see in Ryoga at all. We don't see any of that kind of change in chemical composition or presence of those radioactive nucleotides. Instead, we see something that's much more like a primitive or basic meteorite, the so-called ci which were found based off samples we believe coming from the outer solar system. What can we say then about Ryugu? Well, we now know when it was formed. Of mere 1.8 million years after the formation of our solar system which makes it a venerable long-term inhabitant of our solar system region and it also has some pretty interesting characteristics that make it more like the outer solar system objects and yet we find it here close to earth its small size has somehow managed to be maintained and it didn't break off something much larger or rather just kept that small size the whole time now Obviously, this isn't a complete picture of the formation of our solar system, but it is an interesting way to change our conception of how asteroids may form and survive in our solar system. And even C-type carbonaceous asteroids that we see around here may have more in common with some objects we find in the outer edges of our solar system, like the crondites. There's some great research published in Nature Astronomy with lead authors McCain and Matsuda, and a large list of international collaborators from the United States and Japan. At the edge of our solar system, it's a pretty cold and dark place, but there's a lot of odd things hanging out there. We often call these trans-Neptunian objects, objects that go beyond or sometimes duck into our solar system from hanging far on the edges. But Neptune is a pretty strange planet, because if you look across all the exoplanets that we know there are very few exoplanets that are so far flung so remote and of so significant size like neptune there are some that look like earth or super versions of earth rocky and really close in there's others like jupiter some are far out some are really really close in and really hot but cold large gas giants like neptune aren't really found or at least haven't been found very much in the large amount of exoplanets that we've discovered so, why might that be the case? Researchers from the University of Geneva have published in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics, with lead author on this paper, Buria and Atia. Now, if we consider just our galactic neighborhood alone, researchers have been able to find around 5,000 planets and climbing every day. Even the Webb telescope has actually managed to discover and confirm its first independent exoplanet. Now... We know there's a lot of different ranges of sizes, Jupiter or Saturn sized gas giants or smaller rocky ones. But a gas giant of Neptune size, not as big as Jupiter but not as small like a rocky planet like Earth, isn't really there in this so called distribution of planets. It's an empty box that scientists are trying to fill in. And actually, they call it the hot Neptune desert. Now if you have a planet and it's really close to a star there's a lot of processes that are interacting with each other especially for a gas giant. It's just as likely to be whipped and sucked away in fueling the companion star if it gets too close or it boils with its surface boiling off. Now these are interesting phenomena because you have the complex atmospheric and dynamic processes on the planet then interacting with something nearby. Now is one of the reasons that we don't see Neptune sized planet gas giants really close to stars because, well, has the star just burnt off from their intense radiation all of the atmosphere that it once had? Or maybe these hot Neptunes don't exist because they get thrown out of the inner part of a solar system out to the external edges. Or maybe there's other things that are blocking them from making their way in. So the researchers at the Unige group we're looking at the orbital architecture of planets at the edge of this desert, at this boundary point where we don't really see any large gas giants. And by surveying 14 planets around this area, ranging from small planets to gas giants, the astronomers were interested in the way the orbits changed and were oriented with respect to the axis rotation of their main star. Basically, their star is spinning and the planets themselves orbiting and spinning too. And this would also govern how... Planet would potentially migrate closer in towards the star. Now obviously, when we talk about planetary migration, the gravitational pull of a large object is going to attract other things to it. And there is a tendency of planets to get sucked closer and closer in rather than being at a stable point. The presence of Jupiter in our solar system, for example, is actually a great balancing act. It helps keep the inner planets where they are and the outer ones are where they are as well and blocks everything from sort of falling in towards the center. And it's this kind of migration that can get interrupted and disrupted by what's around them. Now, most planets in the sample of 14 that they studied have an orbit that's misaligned with the stellar equator. or in some way tilted or skewed. And they found that three quarters of these planets have a very polar, but they rotate above the poles of their star, which is way larger than planets further away, which tend to settle out into the flat plane. Now, that's most likely because in this really close in region, this hot Neptune desert, well, it actually creates a lot of disruptive forces which can push them not to be in a stable flat plane, but out of it into all kinds of odd trajectories. How exactly do researchers actually determine and understand what kind of orbit a planet will have? Well, you have to use some pretty interesting tricks. They measure the radial velocity and the transit method. These are two things that scientists use all the time to find exoplanets. But by analysing the radial velocities during the transit, they can actually determine if the planet orbits around the equator, so in the flat plane like you're probably imagining when you see all the planets in a line, or on some other eccentric plane around the poles and this is a really cool thing that you can use this technique that they've developed and and analyzed because it helps actually understand the strange things that are going on that are pushing planets all over the place inside a solar system as it's forming so having exoplanets orbiting around a star isn't nice and simple or static a lot of the time especially as you get closer in and have a significant size there's too many complex forces at play with each other both in atmospheric and fluid forces, that can lead to all kinds of strange behavior, like getting thrown completely off plane, orbiting around the star in a totally weird way, much in the same way that how Neptune does in our solar system, just further out. So this we can see in all kinds of solar systems of exoplanets across our galaxy. And it goes to show that Neptune may be rare and unusual, but the strange orbit of Neptune certainly isn't, Especially as you get closer in, the orbits become more and more strange, and that's some great research published in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics about how objects can hang out in weird, complex locations as they orbit a star. The lead author on this paper was Bourier and Atia. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From finding out about asteroid samples returned to Earth and what they can tell us about the formation of our solar system, to why Neptune is so strange, especially compared to other Neptune-like objects. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.